Today's January 4th, 2021. Georgia is set to decide the fate of the Senate. The GOP wants to create a special election commission. And Trump calls COVID numbers fake news. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another fantastic episode for you here today with all the best news and insights that your heart could possibly desire. We have been working tirelessly over the holiday in order to bring you all the good and the bad from the left, all the good and the bad from the right, and of course, you know what we like to do here. We're going to do our best to split the difference, find that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. Thank you for joining us. If you're new, our goal here on this podcast is to be political and to have conversations that are difficult to have, but at the same time, build a little bit of community, build some unity around the conversation and not work to sow all the discord and division that we see today in America, but rather have opinions that are educated and be okay with someone else that disagrees with us. But know at the end of the day, we can always kind of come together in the middle and find where that sweet truth often lies. If that is something that you are interested in, please come along with us and we're going to hop on in to our first story of the day. Story number one. So for our first story of the day, I know we're hopping into this pretty quick. We got a lot to cover today, okay? So you guys got to bear with me. We're going to be trudging through a whole bunch of stuff, but it's all good, juicy details that have happened over this holiday weekend. So first story is that Georgia is going to the polls. So tomorrow, Georgia will vote in a very, very significant special election in the Senate runoff for uh, the two fate of the two Senate seats that are there in Georgia. They are currently both held by two Republicans, um, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, and it is it is it is shaping up to be quite the fight tomorrow. So it is significant in a whole lot of ways. Okay, I'm going to go through my top three ways that this is so incredibly significant. Okay, we're going to try and break them down a little bit, talk through them. We've talked a lot about this Georgia special election, this runoff that's happening uh, tomorrow. Uh, over the past couple of months, and there's definitely been a lot of news and media coverage around it. So we're not going to try and spend too much time on it, but we do want to break down the significance of it because it is probably one of the most significant elections that we've had in this specific election cycle. So first is the history behind it. So there hasn't been a Republican incumbent to be defeated by an opposing Democrat in a Deep South state since 1986. So the Deep South would include Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina. Okay, These have been deep red states for a very, very long time. There actually hasn't even been a Democrat elected to any of these Senate seats since 2008. Okay, So that means that with the 10 seats that these five Deep South states hold... Over the last 12 years, they have all been Republican, okay? Just for context, 10 Senate seats is 10% of the Senate, okay? That's a, that's a good portion of the Senate, right, that have just been solidly Republican, solidly red for a very long time, okay? And that Democrat actually wasn't even running against an incumbent, like I was saying before. That hasn't happened since 1986, so that is a... Has a very very long time for uh, for the Republicans to basically hold this solid foothold in the South and to have those seats that have pretty much been guaranteed uh, for a very long time. However, as many of you know, Georgia flipped blue for the presidential election in 2020. 
which is very interesting. It hasn't voted blue, hadn't voted Democrat in a very long time as well for the presidency. So um, all of these seats have been solidly held by Republicans, and I think in a lot of a lot of Republicans have somewhat held these seats for granted. Uh, but it's shaping up to be a very very close race in the runoff uh, in well in in the act of initial election. Uh, in uh, on November third last year, uh, David Perdue beat John Ossoff, who is the Democrat, um, by I think maybe little less than two percentage points. Uh, and Warnock actually, the Democrat, beat Loeffler um, in the other election for her seat as well. But neither of neither Loeffler nor Perdue. And neither of them were able to seal 50% of the vote, so this is why we're going to this special runoff election here. So the second big thing, outside of the history, the second big thing is that if, Democrat, if Democrats both win, win both of these seats here, that would mean that Democrats hold control of the presidency and both chambers of Congress. So as I've talked a little bit about before, a little refresher, or if you haven't listened to any of the previous podcasts where I've talked about this, Currently, the Republicans hold a 50, uh, 50 seats within uh, the Senate, right? So with them losing these two seats here, that would mean that there would be a 50-50 tie between Republicans and Democrats, which would mean that the vice president, who is the president of the Senate, would be Kamala Harris, and she would be the tie-breaking or the deciding vote. That means that Mitch McConnell loses all of the power that he has had over the past really, I mean, eight years. He's had a lot of power over the past uh, decade to two decades within the Senate. Uh, Personally, I'm not a huge fan of either party holding the presidency, the House, and the Senate. I wasn't a huge fan that the Republicans were able to solidify all that control in 2016. um, And that's you know, they didn't really do much with it, but that's not necessarily because I think that either party is necessarily has all the right principles or all the wrong principles or whatever. It's mainly because I think that there needs to be that balance of party, I, balance of both parties. Like there needs to be somewhat of a power struggle back and forth where there's like that yin and yang between the two parties where they kind of help hold each other accountable. They don't let more progressive agenda get involved uh, in the policy making. And when you have one party that has consolidated control basically across the three things that make that are able to pass the laws, and that being the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the presidency, then in a lot of ways, you're allowing the more progressive types to get gain much more of a foothold and really much more of a seat at the table. And I believe you did see that in 2016 as well. The good bit of the Trump agenda, the tax or uh, the job, the tax cuts and jobs act that was passed by the Trump administration and the Republican Senate and Republican House of Representatives was a probably one of the more conservative leaning tax cuts that have been there, uh, been passed in a very long time, and that was because they'd consolidated control um, over the Rep- House of Representatives and the Senate as well. So I, I do think and I do believe wholeheartedly that you kind of have to have that balance of power between the two parties as much as you may vote Republican all the time. You may not want all of the extreme parts of the Republican agenda to be pushed. And that, that's the same with the Democrats as well. Like There are a lot of more moderate Democrats that, as much as they may not like the Republicans, those Republicans are the ones that are kind of stonewalling a lot of the more far left progressive agenda that even more moderate Democrats would not particularly care for. So um, this could, I, I think, um, in some ways, though, this really could lead to a pretty large decrease in power that the Republicans have held for a pretty long time, okay? If you're a, you see that Georgia not only flipped blue for the president, but also for the senatorial races as well, you're going to see a 
strong foothold that the Republicans had in the Deep South all of a sudden turned blue. And that is going to be very, very, very scary for future prospects of any Republicans that are running, not only within Georgia, but also the surrounding states and, you know, the election, the greater elections, the presidential election as a whole. You can't take those electoral votes for granted anymore if you're a Republican. You're going to have to work very, very hard or that much harder to be able to convince Americans that you are the one that needs to be in office if you're a Republican. Because, you know, those those deep red states may, may, may be slowly but surely starting to trend more blue. So the third thing... I think that is really significant about this is that this will cement the control over the Republican Party, uh, whether it'll whether it'll cement the control of the Republican Party for Trump. Okay, so we got to dig a little bit deeper for this in order to be able to kind of understand like what it is that's going on right now. So. Right now, Trump is trying his best to hold Republicans' feet to the fire um, that basically haven't been willing to buy into his agenda before. And I'm talking specifically about stimulus and this COVID relief debacle that has gone on within the past week and a half or so. So Mitch McConnell has... He's pretty much been the voice of the Senate for a very long time. He's the Senate Majority Leader currently, and he is known of just being for just being a stalwart. I mean, conservative, right wing, fiscally conservative Republican, right? Very, very, very conservative guy. Okay, and he has maintained basically this image in this this air about the Republican Party of being much more conservative than his. You know, maybe even you're thinking about like Paul Ryan, who was the Speaker of the House, the majority Speaker of the House when the Republicans had control of it a couple of years back. Like, I think that you see Mitch McConnell though has butted heads with Trump a lot because Trump is not your stereotypical conservative, right? He has moved the Republican Party uh, in a way that is very, very different than the traditional, like fiscally and morally conservative Republicans that you used to see in the Trump and in the, or I mean, that you used to see in the Bush era, especially back into the Reagan era and the H.W. Bush era as well. Republicans were very, very fiscally conservative, and they were also very morally conservative as well. Trump, on the other hand, has kind of taken a lot of that control out of the hands of those traditional conservatives, those more establishment Republicans, establishment GOP members, and has kind of consolidated control of the party around himself. So, with Trump going out and actually siding with the Democrats over the past couple of weeks around how much money the stimulus checks should be and the amount of stimulus that each American should get, he's actually breaking ranks with the Republicans in a traditional sense, and he's saying, which, one of you, which ones of you are going to follow me, right? Which ones of you are going to follow Mitch McConnell and the, G, the traditional, more establishment GOP, and who's going to get on boat for this new Republican Party that I've created and that I've consolidated the control around, right? And what this does in a lot of ways is it kind of splits the Republican Party in half. You have one half that's working to stick to the traditional Republicans, and you have one half that's going to follow underneath Trump and try to create this new, more nationalist, more patriotic form of uh, Republican Party. So as the Republican majority leader, McConnell, McConnell has been the voice of the Republicans for the while, and as Trump is leaving office, I think that he is looking at McConnell and the other Republicans, and he's letting them know, I'm not going anywhere, right? I'm not going anywhere at all. It was Mitch McConnell that worked so hard to make sure that the fiscal 
uh, that the pack that the package, the stimulus package that was passed, was a bit more fiscally conservative, especially than what the Democrats wanted, right? But even within Republican circles, uh, Mitch McConnell had the more fiscally conservative stimulus package that he wanted. The package that he wanted to pass was like three hundred billion dollars. The one that ended up passing was around nine hundred billion dollars. If you don't include the fourteen hundred dollar uh, check that would be sent out again to every American if that actually ends up getting passed to the Senate, which it doesn't look like it will. So um, basically what Trump is doing is he's saying, look, I, I may very well be leaving office, right? But I'm not going anywhere. And if you want to get in with this new Republican Party that I have created and that I'm bolstering up, then you're going to have to get on board with me and you're going to have to get on board with what I say. And I'm Donald Trump. I, I hold the power. What I say goes. And at any point, if any of these more establishment Republicans start to break with the Trump ranks, Trump can just blackball them. You know, he can just that's that's the dirty game of politics, right? It's the it's the shifting and the lobbying and the jockeying back and forth of power. And Mitch McConnell is very, very purposefully working to try and keep Trump from consolidating that type of power by trying to blackball these fourteen hundred dollar increase of the stimulus checks that could be sent out. So if if these Democrats end up losing or end up winning in Georgia, I mean, the Republicans end up losing, I think in many ways you're going to see Donald Trump stand up and be like, I told you, I told you, you guys can just blame Mitch McConnell for this. And you're going to see a lot of anger within the Republican Party looking at Mitch McConnell and establishment Republicans and saying, listen, you can't break, break rank and file with Trump because if you do, you're going to get burned. And that's exactly what Trump wants, whether that's for a... 2024 presidential run, which I don't see happening, or whether that's for Donald Trump basically just holding a lot more power in various business activities and media outlets, maybe that he starts to run and control here over the next couple of years. Uh, you can't break with Trump because he has such a solid base, such a solid base. So, um, uh, just to quickly run through, I think, um, a little bit of the arguments for the left and the right that are, that kind of each are doling out there in Georgia. And we won't spend too much more time on this because we've got other things to talk about as well. But um, the right's argument against the left. So Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, the Republicans that are running in Georgia, their argument, much of it hinges on pointing out, pointing out the much leftward, I guess, drift of the Democratic Party over the past couple of years, which is absolutely true, right? The Democratic Party started to shift more progressive. There's been a clear move towards socialization of healthcare, the expansion of other social welfare programs, the open adoption of identity politics, and categorizing people into separate racial groups uh, based upon their relative, quote, oppression. Like, all of that is pretty mainstream within the Democratic Party now. So a lot of Loeffler and Purdue's claims, however, are arguing that the Democrats want to come for people's guns, to take away their rights, and to basically just kill babies uh, wantonly within the womb, right? That isn't necessarily true. That's not part of the Democratic agenda, or at least not part of the Democratic Party platform or anything that I've read. There are, of course, more progressives within the Democratic Party that have talked about taking away guns or having extreme limits on guns, but none of them have called for a full uh, actual taking away of guns that are more moderate Democrats, right? The mainstream Democrats are not doing that. So a lot of the rights tactics in this have kind of been fear-mongering. Hey, they're going to take away all your rights. They're going to take away everything you have if you vote these Democrats into office. The left's argument against the right, however, has basically been, 
There's been significant progress in racial and social movements that need to continue, and we're the party that can do it, okay? So a lot of this is somewhat true as well. There have been tr- there's been tremendous change over the past 60 years, especially in the belief systems of Americans and the push against racism. I think that racism is not nearly as prevalent as it was within the 60s, 50s, 40s, and all that. Like It's apparently obvious that blacks and brown, black and brown people in America have much, much more rights than they did then and are far better off now than they were 50, 60 years ago, right? Um, There are also much less people in poverty currently in the United States than ever before, along with a much more acute awareness for the need to bring those people out of poverty and to lift them up, right? An awareness of and an understanding of the, you know, the destitute is a very, very good thing for our country to have. And the Democrats are arguing that we've grown in these ways. The problem is the solutions and the arguments for more forward movement are based oftentimes in very exaggerated claims that exacerbate current racial tensions, okay? So, for example, John Ossoff has said that he wants to push a, quote, new Civil Rights Act and a new Voting Rights Act. Um, however, he uses these like claims to, to basically argue that, that we need a new Voting Rights Act and need a new Civil Rights Act by saying, you know, that the police are... Uh, overwhelmingly shooting black people in the streets, that there's just this widespread uh, uh, epidemic of police officers just walking into the street and purposefully looking for black people to kill. That is not true, at least not within any of the data that I've seen. There, of course, are black people, unarmed black men and women that are killed every single year by police officers. But to say that there is a current system within the United States that purposefully seeks out the lives of black people to kill them is an incredibly uh, dangerous thing to say that is not necessarily backed in a lot of fact. Um, and he also uh, talks a lot about voter suppression tactics. And, you know, that's not even necessarily true, especially within Georgia that he's talking about when you've seen pretty solid increases in black voter turnout in recent elections. I mean, sizable increases. Right. So there's not a lot of evidence that there's a, a significant amount of voter suppression tactics that are being done against black Americans specifically. So both sides are lining up with swords drawn ready for a very, very serious fight. They've been fighting this for months and months and months now, and it all comes down to, to tomorrow's election. Be very, very interesting to watch. I'm sure that we'll have a lot to talk about on it uh, with it all on Wednesday. So with all of that, sorry we spent a lot of time on story number one. Let's move on into our second story of the day, story number two. So for our second story of the day, the GOP tried to invoke a special election commission. So on Wednesday, the electoral voters are, electoral votes are set to be certified by a joint session of Congress, and the GOP have said that they are going to um, basically break rank and file with what has traditionally been done during this process. And if there's not a special election commission set up, so we'll break down this break down the story a little bit. But first, let's hop in and take a quick look. Um, this is a, done by today. A new band of Trump loyalists, 11 Republican senators, current and incoming, deliver a controversial ultimatum. Voter fraud is a real problem. Led by Texas Senator Ted Cruz, the group says they will object to Joe Biden's Electoral College victory unless Congress creates a new Electoral Commission to conduct an emergency 10-day audit of the election returns. Wednesday, Congress will carry out the tradition of certifying the Electoral College results state by state. Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley and a group of House Republicans had already announced plans to object. The president tweeted praise. 
After they see the facts, plenty more to come. Our country will love them for it. All right, so uh, the goal here, according to these Senate Republicans, is not to flip the election results, supposedly, right? So um, I think that what a lot of Republicans in the Senate have realized, that this whole narrative that there was widespread and rampant voter fraud, that uh, the entire election was a total hoax, as Donald Trump has said, or that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, is not flying very well, especially with the American people. I think the majority of American people are looking at that and they're being like, what are you t- like? What are you talking about? They've been talking about the smoke and gun for two months now. Trump's legal team is just getting beaten in every single case. Cases aren't even being allowed into the courts, even by conservative justices appointed by Bush and Trump. Like, what are you guys talking about? So their plan is to actually ask for a special election commission that would come in and do an audit, a 10-day audit of the election results in key swing states. So they're calling for the exact same thing that happened in uh, 1876. So if you want more about that election, I, because I'm always working to bring you all the best insights here on Split the Difference podcast, already did a full podcast talking specifically about that election because I thought that there were a good amount of parallels in the conversations that were happening around that election and this election as well. So um, if you want more information about that election, check out, it's actually episode number 26. If, you wanna, if you've listened to it before or want to listen to it, uh, again, go ahead and do it. If you haven't listened to it, strongly suggest it because I really broke down that election a lot. And um, it would help explain through a lot of the stuff that I'm about to talk to as well. So um, basically, the goal would be to create a commission made up of five senators, five people from the House of Representatives, and then five people from the Supreme Court. They would carry out a 10-day audit to look through the election of various, in various swing states, like I said before, seeing if there was any fraud that took place and auditing to make sure that those, ele- those states carried out their elections appropriately. At the end of the 10-day period, they would reconvene with the results and decide on the winner of the presidential election with Congress. So Congress would reserve the right to accept or deny the findings of the special commission, and then it would be up to the states whether or not they wanted to change the actual electors' votes that were cast. So... There's some pretty clear differences between the election that happened in 1876 and one that happened in 2020, 2020, namely that in 1876 there were people riding around on horseback, burning crosses in people's yards, lynching people and dumping their bodies in rivers, and uh, people standing outside of voting booths and beating and berating people and keeping them from voting. That, don't, don't see any evidence of that happening in 2020. So, I'm not necessarily saying that there wasn't any fraud, right? Because, of course, there was fraud. There's fraud in every single election. The question is, was there enough fraud to be able to actually flip it, right? The big question is, could they come in and have a special counsel, that a special election commission that could review all of the evidence from these swing states, see what happened, right, and then actually flip the results of the election, So this answer is extremely complicated, but the very, very simple answer is yes, they actually could flip the results of the election. So if a special commission is granted by a joint meeting in Congress uh, and they do actually go through in their audit and find dubious activity that actually amounts to enough to flip the election or the outcome of the states, they would then bring that before Congress and before the American people Congress would then have the opportunity to actually flip the electors and decide who the electoral votes should have been cast for. Okay, so this is what happened in 1876 in South Carolina, Louisiana, and I believe uh, Missouri or Mississippi, or maybe it was Florida. 
And what and basically what ended up happening was there was a lot of horrible stuff happening in those states. They didn't, you know, there was a lot of questions about whether or not the votes that were cast, the electoral votes that were cast, were cast correctly. And so they went through, created this commission, went in and found that there was a rampant amount of fraud that took place, went through and flipped the the results of those electors. So the next question is, is this likely to happen? No, not at all. Okay. Trump would need, if not hundreds of thousands, millions of votes to be flipped. Okay, that would be an there would have to be an absolutely unprecedented amount of fraud uncovered by the special commission, which has thus far not been uncovered Um, and not just fraud, but purposeful interference that is completely undisputable when held up to 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 scrutiny. Right. Like it can't be some shaky out of focus video of a specific room within a specific county in Georgia where it looks like someone picked up and moved a box to another place. Like there would have to be completely indisputable evidence for them to bring before Congress and show them that there was enough fraud to actually flip the results of the election for that to happen. So far, that does that seems total almost completely out of the realm of possibility. So uh, one of the most common things that I've heard within Republican circles about all this is that there's been over a thousand affidavits that have been collected by the Trump legal team. That is absolutely true. However, I would be willing to place a large bet, a very sure bet, that if Donald Trump stood up and asked for 1,000 affidavits to be submitted about literally anything, he would be able to get it out of the over 70 million people that voted for him, okay? There are some very hardcore Trump fans out there and I am, I can say with, I mean, a high degree of certainty that he could get a thousand affidavits for pretty much whatever it is that he wants. Um, but bottom line is this will all be over within the next couple of weeks. And if slash when this totally flops, right. And the, the Republicans are going to be incredibly embarrassed on a national stage yet again around this whole election fraud interference. And all of these Republicans that have jumped onto this Trump train and are just now going, I mean, they're just going down with it, right? Like they're like, I mean, I'm going, I'm going in 100%. I'm going down kicking and screaming and it is going to be uh, not, not a good look for the Republicans as a whole. So with all of that, let's go ahead and move on in to our last story of the day. Story number three. So for our third story of the day, Trump calls the COVID numbers fake news. Not surprising. So we have Trump again disputing the numbers of deaths within COVID. A couple of states came out and released kind of a backlog a little bit of um, COVID data that they had and ended up bumping up the number of deaths that we have in the United States. I think right now we're actually hovering around 350,000 deaths, according to the CDC. Um, And it also should be pointed out that the CDC that he is fighting with is, of course, the same CDC that is under his own administration. They're within the executive branch. He appoints these people <laughs> like he's fighting with his own people. But anyways, let's hop in real quick and listen through. Uh, this is done by ABC, Dr. Anthony Fauci, talking a bit about Trump, you know, being angry about this. Dr. Fauci, the president just tweeted that the number of deaths is far exaggerated, blaming the CDC's what he called ridiculous method of determination compared to other countries. Your response to that? Uh, Well, the the deaths are real deaths. I mean, all you need to do is to go out into the trenches, go to the hospitals, see what the healthcare workers are dealing with. 
they are under very stressed situations. In many areas of the country, the hospital beds are stretched. People are running out of beds, running out of trained personnel who are exhausted right now. That's real. That's not fake. That's real. All right. So um, this is just an awesome example of how incredibly political and uh, this whole coronavirus thing has gotten. So Trump has managed to change the narrative around the coronavirus too. quote. If you think that COVID is having a large effect on America or is having a very poor effect on America, then you are all you're basically just buying the fake news media narrative. If you think that America hasn't handled the pandemic well, then you are un-American and you're not supporting your country well. Just unbelievable. So. What are the two sides saying about this? Okay, where is there any legitimacy on both sides of the aisle? Um, and I think there is legitimacy on both sides, both arguing um, and different points that they make. There's also some fallacy in it as well. So let's take a look at the left. So the left has claimed and continue to claim that the COVID numbers are likely much higher than they actually are. This holds some weight around the total number of people that are infected, okay? Because there are likely a lot of people that are asymptomatic or simply just don't go and get tested. So the argument that there are likely a ton more people that have been or are currently infected with the coronavirus within the United States that absolutely could be true, okay? Even from the very beginning, our testing was not nearly as robust as many other first world countries was uh, and have been. So uh, the, the idea that there are a lot more people infected with COVID-19 in the United States is not a far stretch at all, okay? Uh, there could be plenty of people walking around that are asymptomatic, that don't know that they have the coronavirus, that you just, you don't, you don't ever know. So there's also the fact that the tests are not 100% accurate. So there is a case to be made that there have been a number of people that have gotten COVID and actually received a false negative response from the test. That, of course, can happen, which would mean that there are more people that are actually infected with COVID than, you know, have actually tested positive. Um, however, the left does start to lose a little bit of legitimacy uh, in that because in the sense of like, in that, in that same vein, right, there can also be a false positive, right? So the right side of the argue, right side of the aisle argues that the number of deaths, especially, are exaggerated because of how they're counted. This also holds a little bit of weight. So if you look at how the deaths specifically are accounted for by the CDC, you could kind of start to see how this would be disputed a bit. So there's two main parts of certifying the cause of deaths. The first part has four lines on it. The top line is the immediate cause of death. The next three lines are the more underlying causes. So someone could die of acute respiratory failure as the immediate cause of death, which was brought on by the second line, which would be the be pneumonia, say, on the second line. And then on the third line for the underlying cause, it would be COVID-19 could be listed as another underlying cause, right? The second part of the death certification is about comorbidity. So this could be like immunohealth diseases, heart diseases, etc. Um, so if you're looking at it, you know, what the Republicans and what many people on the right of the aisle are saying is a lot of these people that have died from the coronavirus haven't died specifically because of the coronavirus. They could have had the coronavirus, but then also had a plethora of other issues that were going on that actually ended up causing the death. But because coronavirus is listed on the death certificate is being counted as a COVID-19 death. There's some legitimacy to that. There's also the fact that hospital, hospitals do actually get more money 
for COVID patients. So under the CARES Act that was passed last year for patients with Medicare that are treated for coronavirus, there is a provision within the act that awards hospitals or gives hospitals more money should they treat that patient with COVID. So there actually hasn't been a lot of evidence that has come out that this is widespread and that there's a bunch of hospitals that are purposefully listing people with COVID so that they could get more money. But it is not a far stretch to say or to think within our healthcare system currently as it sits that hospitals would not be inclined to accept COVID-19 patients or to list someone with COVID-19 within, you know, being held within their walls in order to be able to get more money from Medicare. That's not a crazy thing to think. Okay, so... The unfortunate thing is that all this is going on. There's been a really slow rollout of the two vaccines in the United States so far. So we were told that there's going to be about 20 million doses that have been passed out by the end of December. Um, By the end of December, there were around 4.2 million that had actually been passed out. So a far, far stretch or far difference from what we were told would be rolled out. So regardless of what your political stance is, it is clear that COVID isn't going anywhere for a very long time. Whether or not you think that it has actually killed 300,000 350,000 people or not, you have to see and recognize it is still here. We're still very much in the midst of a pandemic and there are absolutely people that are getting it and absolutely people that are dying from it. So um, unfortunately, that's just where we're in. Hopefully in 2021, you'll we can uh, kind of start to see some things change around all of that. So with all of that having been said, That is the end of our third story of the day. Let's go ahead and end on the last segment of the show, my favorite segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week is the show Queen's Gambit. Many of you have probably seen this on Netflix already. I know that I am slow here. I'm I'm coming in behind everybody. I hardly ever watch TV, like literally never watch TV (laughs) and, uh, I've, but you know, I've had a bunch of friends. I really, really enjoy chess. Like chess is so much fun. It's what, one of the things that I do when I'm sitting around in my free time is I read and I play chess. I realize how much of a loser that makes me sound, but, uh, the queen's gambit is, is about chess and it's about a girl, a fictitious girl. That's, you know, her name is Beth Harmon and she goes on, basically she's just this prodigy chess player. And uh, it's been really, really good so far. So far, my wife and I have watched through, I think, five episodes out of four or five episodes out of seven, and it has been so good. So if you have not watched it, definitely take a watch, take your time, listen through it, watch through it. It has been really, really cool. And also, you should totally tempt you to pick up chess. Chess is a very fun game. It's one of the older games in the world. You totally should check it out and enjoy that as well. So with all that, that's the end of the show. Thank you for joining in with us today listening to all these great news and insights here on Split the Difference podcast. Please, as always, remember to give us a like on Instagram, on Facebook, send it around to all your friends and family. We're on YouTube and my website as well, splitthedifference.com. If you are interested in any of that, please go on there. Give us a like, a subscribe, a thumbs up, a five-star review. All those things go a really, really long ways for helping us out here on the show. As always, remember, guys, we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We're going to do our best to remain reasonable, and we're always going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.